0: It's Thursday, August 24th, 2017, and you're listening to episode 455 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more, where time for this episode is 48 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Brodor.
1: And this is Julia.
0: This is Ryan. All right, so we've got Ryan Frederick joining us remotely even though I know enough German to say his name is probably pronounced Friedrich, he has insisted it is Frederick, And so we'll, we'll just play along with that delusion. And uh,
2: Look, the old world German pronunciation is more akin to Friedrich, but I'd have to punch myself and sneeze every time I pronounce it.
0: So what we have Ryan on for today is to talk about his GMing style and to talk a little bit about some stuff related to gaming for kids, because... There was a game that he ran at Fear the Con that Chad was in on. And, then of course, Chad's supposed to be here for this episode and cancels out. So the one player that was there is now not on the episode. So we're just going to have to do our best without him. But it was happy birthday for, and Ryan, I have never been able to catch. Is there a P in the middle? Is it beep boop or bee boop?
2: You would be correct that there's a P in the middle. The full game title was called Happy Birthday Beep Boop.
0: Okay, Happy Birthday Beep Boop, which, just based on the title, I presupposed was based on the Happy Birthday Robot role playing game, which is a role playing game that's meant pretty much for a one shot. And is designed for children, and I'll link to it in the show notes if I can find a link to it. I, th- I think it's still in production, and it's called Happy Birthday Robot or Happy Birthday for Robot or, or something to that effect.
2: But that's I know w- that as of right before Fear the Con, you could get a copy for about ten bucks on Drive Through RPG.
0: Okay, so it is still around. But Ryan, you, did that game at all inspire the concept behind what you were running? I know you said the rules were not taken from it. And we'll get to that Mm -hmm. in a second. But the the gist of the game, because that's what it was about. It was about the group who were robots in a post-apocalyptic environment trying to create a birthday party for another robot. Is that where you took the idea, or something else your inspiration?
2: That is exactly where I took the idea. I actually got it from a Facebook conversation where someone was eliciting, hey, I have these kids, what do I possibly run for them? Most of these tabletop games are for, like, teenagers and above. And the game that kept on being proposed was Happy Birthday Robot, but no one had ever played it. But I liked the title of the game. And I figure, well, if people are going to think, tabletop game for kids, they're going to think happy birthday robot, I might as well play upon that. And from there the tale just grew in the telling, and I made the story for the game.
0: The tale grew in the telling. Alright, let's go with that. So for starters, you did not actually use those rules for the game.
2: No, I absolutely did not use anything from the system. I contemplated for maybe three minutes buying it off of DriveThru RPG. then I would have had to print stuff off, I would have had to memorize and run out and accurately run A whole other game system, so I just made it up. All right,
0: let's talk through your GMing process because one of the things that Chad talked about being really impressed by with this game, and really anyone I know that's played a game with you, where you've taken it fairly seriously, right? It's not just a total slapstick game. Is your ability to connect with people emotionally, to pretty quickly read the table? and to create a story that sort of goes along with their reactions to it. And in Chad's case, he talked about having a pretty strong emotional reaction to the game, mostly because of there was a twist at the end, or near the end or something, where Beepboot's father was well deactivated or dead or whatever. And for his present, they decided to make that his primary present, that they were going to go through this quest... If Chad's telling the story correctly, which is about a 50 50 on that one (laughs) to restore this robot's father robot. And I don't know how that even works to have a father robot, but that's what was going on. Ryan, walk me through this. How do you set these games up? How do you run them? Did Chad even get the story right?
2: Well, I give a lot of validity that there's one thing that I say and then there's what people hear. And then there's what they feedback me for their player actions and trying to run with that. But as for being sensitive to the table, that's part of why I run tabletop games in the first place. So when it comes to how I run this game, I don't really take that many extensive notes. Mainly my notes are just free-handing, free-thought, write whatever comes to mind so I get a sense for the things I need to have a feel for. And this isn't anything where here's the history, here's exactly what happened, here's every detail over 2,000 years. I just need to have a good sense of those things. That way, just being at the moment, I can react accordingly. I can think, okay, here's the setting. Here's the kind of mood I'm going to go with. Here's this kind of character and present it with this living, dynamic human being that's talking to me in that moment. It's completely unscripted. I can't have a one-for-one input-output. I have to be able just to listen to them put myself in the shoes of the character and react accordingly and just bring life to that character.
0: Can you explain what you meant by, there's one thing they say and another I hear?
2: Well, that's part of how I really make the game come alive. Do you mind if I go back to the previous point of how I put the games together? No, Then go I'll ahead. get back to that one. Well, usually with a game, I'll try and put together history, characters, the setting, and more than anything, I'm trying to make the feel and the mood of the setting. That's the sort of ambience that goes into the background. For example, with this game, um, it was not just quite post-apocalyptic since the world was mostly fine. It was post-human, though. It took place after a war where humanity just kept on escalating and they had better and better automation for the warbots that fought and killed each other. And eventually, they were so successful at making warbots and generating AI that could make better AI that all the humans just died out. That was a Truth and fact of the setting, that in this setting, there were no humans at all. They had long since become mummified corpses, bone fragments, and mostly just dust. Then the Warbots kept on fighting each other and destroying each other, and eventually one popped up that was, you know, sapient. It became self-aware, could think, it could feel, and developed from there. Then it was probably promptly murdered by the other Warbots that weren't sapient at the time. But eventually, they murdered each other out enough that one could become sapient and you know carry on or adapt. Eventually, you get this you know, post sapience AI race that they're the ones that inherited the world. So just right there, I set a somber tone or something that could be perceived as somber. One of the tricks of GMing is that I raise things as such where it's open-ended. You have this sort of Miyazaki feel where it's very calm, very peaceful, very empty, but I leave room for interpretation, as Stanley would tell his artists, you're drawing too many lines. You have this person needs to color. You have this person needs to write the script. You have this other person needs to tie it into this IP over there. So you as the artist, the person who's starting this whole thing, don't draw too many lines. You need to re- leave room for everyone. But this technique has many names in, in, many, in different medias. In art and graphic design, it's called negative space. In Miyazaki films, it's called Ma, or Emptiness, and that's really where I let the games come alive. I leave room for that character interpretation. For example, in one other game I had during Fear of the Con, it was Defeat the Evil Princess and Rescue the Dragon. Within minute one, <laughs> one of the players who played, you know, Felicity the River Dragon, I said, oh do you know these other dragons that were kidnapped? And she says, yeah, they were my brothers. Well, there goes 80% of my reveals I had planned at the table, but screw it, they're invested in this. I'm going to go along with it. <laughs> and I threw all that content out the window and just recycled the bits that I needed to on the table as people had inspiration. As for that important reveal for reviving DadBot, look, I had an entirely different plan in place. Then I think the... Eight-year-old at the table, the middle child of the three little girls that were there. One of them said, "Let's bring back Beep Boop's dad!" And within (laughs) one within one second, they were all hooked onto the idea. Within two seconds, they were just excited; their faces lit up, and whatever plot I was going to have for this game, well, the plot is now: let's revive Beep Boop's dad.
0: See, you handled that completely wrong, which you should have
2: done. (laughs)
0: You should have. First chest-
2: of all, you're an idiot. Second of
0: all, yeah, opens- you, you should have chest kicked her out of the chair and been like, "No, that's not the plot." Now, because you pissed me off for playing
2: Tomb of Horrors. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, because nothing says tabletop games like murdering the hope of small children. <laughs> that's right.
0: Happy birthday, Lichlord. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's so cute, though. Like I can just imagine this little girl saying that. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> the girl in the room thinks it's cute.
3: I think the most important thing that he did is he recognized a moment where one player was invested and then instantly the entire table was invested. And he had two choices. Choice A is stringently sticked to the material that he had prepared. And choice B was to give the audience what they want and to let them have that, you know, to use the douche term player agency let them have the opportunity to control the flow of the narrative and he can then respond to their desires, which that's where the magic for me as a game master happens is when the players are so invested, your job becomes less work.
1: Well, and I think that is a really cool concept to leave it so open-ended and for you to use Miyazaki films as an example, because I feel exactly what you're talking about now because all of his are Mm -hmm. very calm and peaceful But there's always like a big message or something that you're trying to get across in those movies. And I feel like that's a really good way of putting a GMing style.
2: Well, I could bounce around to source material after source material for why that works out so well. Look at the old Aesop's fables back in the day. They didn't just tell you a moral of a story or an idea they wanted to communicate. They wrapped it within a setting, within characters and events and plots and everything where to give context to this idea to really make someone feel it and connect with it and empathize with what's going on, it has to be given context in every nuance I can try and bring to the table. But I also have to admit that I really have limitations and embrace that fact, where sometimes I'm going to have ideas that they will fall flat or I'll have storylines that really won't connect with anyone at the table, and I have to drop it, not try and hold on to it like a you know, GM that loves control or try and try and get that feedback to my ego. What I really want to do is make that table come alive for that shared experience. And if the players are invested in one area, I dump the ideas for that path they weren't going down, and I try to recycle as best I can.
0: Soren, let me ask you something else. If we talk about a story being told with that intentional negative space, with that area where things are not completely defined, and you leave space for player interpretation, or player characters to have reaction or things in the history. Like, for example, when you were laying out your history of robots, one of the things that immediately came to my mind that I was fascinated by is the first robot who had sapience. You know, that would be a fantastic short story about him developing sapience, yet being so surrounded by robots that it might be sentient. Meaning, you know, they're aware and even aware of the fact that they're aware, but they have no sapience, they have no wisdom, they have no culture, they have no sense of meaning. And right. his development of that, his struggle with it, and then ultimately what becomes a very, very empty death as there's no room for it in the world, right? The world isn't ready for the message he has to deliver, which is the tragic story of so many great people in history Mm -hmm. who resonate, you know, centuries or even millennia after they lived. And so I think that would be a fascinating story. But nonetheless, there's clearly, even if it's not defined, there's clearly some loose intent there, right? In Aesop's fables, he paints this world and he tells these these aphorisms, these sort of truisms about how the world works that could be applied to a variety of situations. Mm-hmm. But there is still some intent. There's some coloration. There's some tonality to that negative space, right? It's not truly empty. It's just mostly empty-ish. And I'm curious, what, when you wrote that game, What were you trying to fill? And it may not be plot points or setting, but what kind of emotion or kind of experience were you hoping would fill that negative space?
2: You know, honestly, I didn't walk into it with any sort of set expectations for the mood that would come up for the game because I'm never going to know when I've tried to go walk into a game with that mood in mind, just the alchemy at that table and how personalities come together it's never going to hash out like that because each person's going to have their own individual meaning that they interpret through everything. Now, case in point, when it comes to individual meaning, that's actually probably the core design for anything I do with this sorts of games or anything I do with my games in Fear of the Con this year. How can I siphon down to that person's individual meaning, their internal voice, and how do I amplify that? How do I enkindle that? And I start with just the way that the character sheet is mechanically set up. Uh, For example, the youngest at the table and by far the one who had most of my attention for the game, I think she was about seven years old, and she played a robot character called you know, Cosine the Three Years. Just that with the name, that's an identity right there, whether it's what other people call her or what she calls herself. That kind of hooks the character initially because it's their first bite into either that person or the character sheet. The next line would have to be their specialty, and their specialty would be what that robot does that most people cannot. This is directly taken from gimmicks from Quags. So that specialty would be maybe she's able to perceive the world in a different light, or maybe she connects the world in a way that most people can't, and see what that player brings meaning to that. And that is played out through every layer of that character sheet, be it their belief, which is their personal truth, and be it their perspective or how they see the world, or just Basically what they believe to hold true in this world. Be it bad or good, but beliefs aren't made into vacuum. A good belief will try and tell you more about the world and how they came to view it. Then there's the skills, which are completely qualitative. I think uh, they think Cosine's skills were uh, Pan Spectrum Audio Suite and Big Book of Bug Friends. It did not start as Big Book of Bug Friends, but it later became me just calling the skill that, and that's what I remember. And I let that tale kind of grow in the telling. How that person interprets those skills, those beliefs, how it brings their character. If I put in enough context into that, and I put enough that it evokes their imagination and they start extrapolating their own meaning for who this character is, uh, it gets them role-playing into character in a very short period of time. And if I can get one person to find meaning in their character, which is their own individual voice and what they bring to the table, that kind of engenders them to see meaning in each other character at the table and what that other player has and being able to see that in the world. What I can do as a GM to make this come alive is just kind of open myself and try and be vulnerable to what they're putting out. So if what's a good example? Oh, during one scene in the game where it's happy birthday beep boop and the plot as it's presented is putting a birthday assembling a birthday party for beep boop. One of the first places they go is they go and get, I think, decorations of piñata from the shiny sphere. And my notes were exactly just that and painting the picture as they approached it and feeling the mood out of the table. Now, Cosine just puts her hand on the ground, and the player is actually mimicking me as I'm pantomiming this out, showing her what her character's doing. And she kind of sends out the sonar pulse and sees through these colors in the ground, you know, different rock formations, different continuities of sand. And she summons her first bug friend, which I think was, oh yeah, Cuddles the sandworm. So it summons this <laughs> dune-sized worm from Arachnus, emerging and just spearing through the sand, turning over like a whale doing stunts in midair, dives back down, and just surges towards their location, causing the sand wave and ripple to go rushing ahead of it. And it just emerges right before Cosine, rearing its head and opening its trifocal jaws, And just roaring and just gently leaning off its head, wanting pets from Cosine. And Cosine feeds it these apple slices, which is Cosine's favorite snack of all. So right there, it's opening up what this creature is, this sort of spectacle, and how they're going to react to that. And I'm implying a relationship with this. This isn't just some random creature that she summoned. It's from her big book of bug friends. These are her bug friends. And that implies that she spent time with these creatures. She's befriended them she has some sort of connection and feeling with them. And I can just put myself in the shoes of that of that NPC, in this case, a giant arachnid-sized sandworm, you know, to try and push that upon her and bring her onto the same emotional page, where this is this friend who's just so happy to see her.
0: You know, Ryan, there's something that we have long espoused on this show, and it's interesting how you've inverted that equation. And the concept is that, We always talk about creating player buy-in by asking the players to give the Game Master plot hooks that they can work into the game. Here's an NPC with whom they have an unresolved relationship. Here's some unanswered mystery. You know, my father went missing and I don't know where he is. But there's something that the Game Master can use later in the game to make it personal. And for anyone that's listening to the actual play of skies of glass, they hear that happening. And you know, I'm playing off of those and will God willing continue to do so throughout the entire course of the campaign. But there's something that Brodor did with the you tell me system and you've done as well, which is to flip the script on that and to instead trigger that storytelling by giving the player something unexplained that you created. So it's not the player feeding the game master information. The game master feeds the player information that beggars storytelling. You know, for example, when I was in Brodor's Gore game, I know we've told this one before, but one of the skills that I had or traits that I had was one of your nine pieces of pertinent information. Yeah. Whatever was that I had been on and won uh, four, four times, four times. What the hell? The the price is right.
3: Price is right. Yeah. The price is right. Four times.
0: Price is right. (laughs) You've been to the showcase showdown. Yeah. You're a veteran of the showcase showdown. And so the question was, you know, what does that give me? What purpose does that play in the game? What do I actually do with this information? If anything, and Brodo, of course, the "You Tell Me" system. His response was, "You tell me."
1: You and- know how to guess prices very well. <laughs>
3: well, so here's the genius of what he did, because we, we we talk about how cell phones at the table are bullshit. You shouldn't do it. So Dan's on his cell phone at the, at the at, you know, Jim like, ah, that's whatever, you know, let it go, and it's a con game, whatever. So Dan's using his cell phone. To look up prices of things, so that when he can say <laughs> in character that he has this thing, he can quote to the penny well, how well, much he something knows. is.
0: Yeah, we did it, it was amazing. Yeah. He blew up the yeah. he-bean brotor at some plot point, blew up the Gore Jet or whatever it's called, yeah. and so yeah. we need another plane. And I was able to would be like, well, fortunately, the last time I was on Prices Right, I won. I don't remember what it was. Some like Cessna multi-person, like you know, <laughs> personal plane, and. it you know, by guessing its price of, and I gave, like you said, I gave the price down to the nickels and dimes of what that plane retails for. Right.
3: And it was at that moment I was like, okay,
0: I've never game with Dan before, but he's in, <laughs> so we just ran with it, right? But you know, it, it what it does though is it right? It creates that moment where it it stirs my creativity. Or if I look at it and don't like it, I can walk away from it. There's nothing in the game that made me develop that. And I had other things on my character sheet, some of which I used, some of which I don't think I did. But the thing that makes that work is
3: that you have a variety of pieces of information that if I had handed that same character sheet to somebody else, they would have gravitated Mm -hmm. to other aspects on the character sheet and would have had a different Play experience.
1: Well, and I think that a lot of times when you hand your plot hooks off to a GM, you know, I think a lot of people have an idea of what it's going to (laughs) be in the back of their mind. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, it'll get to here and here and here. And then if the GM doesn't follow that, you end up kind of disappointed in Mm -hmm. your character. And I think that the, you know, you tell me puts that on the player. You know, the player gets to kind of develop where a story is going to go within that character rather than just hey, my father disappeared, there you go, and, like, hoping for the best, you know? Well,
3: and you're like, wait (laughs) a minute, I've got this entire world of people that I have to control, and now you're giving me new, you're giving me the Game Master, your story and your homework. (laughs) Ah, f***
2: that. Sorry. Well, if I may for a moment, just show that some templates are so good that they keep on being reused for decades, centuries, or even millennia. Look at some of the old Greek plays, or even look at Shakespearean plays. You will have countless people playing Hamlet, Lady Macbeth, and Ophelia, but each one's going to bring in something new to that equation, something new to that experience. And on top of that, the group chemistry and how that play goes out, even though all the lines are written down, you can see exactly what's going to happen scene by scene, but just the social dynamic that happens there, the chemistry is going to change even if you swap out one person, let alone swap out everyone at the table.
0: Sure. you want to see that in modern pop culture look at the different interpretations of the Joker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the ones that you have within, let's just say the past 50 years, let's start with like Caesar Romero, and then you can move forward to that to good old Jack. And then you've got uh, Mark, Mark Hamill doing the voice acting in there. You've got Jared Leto. Heath you've Ledger. got you got Heath Ledger. You have all these different interpretations. There's many people that have voice acted him, and you have all these different takes on what is fundamentally the same character, and,
2: and people can't enjoy that. They love hearing it. Look at Wayne and how much he loves comic books. I'm sure he would love ninety percent of the interpretations of Batman out there. And to bring this to tabletop games, that's really how I'm able to get people to enkindle their own internal voice and just be creative and safe with that. Because you got to figure creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum. You have Every expectation of every person around you would tell you no, say that it is stupid, they'd never want to hear it again, or every bad piece of feedback you've or every idea that you released into the wild just to hear crickets. But, what if I'm a GM who sits there in this kind of position of authority that sets the mood, because I'm introducing the setting, the story, the characters, your character sheets... I'm having these pushes to everyone at the table. And you grab your character sheet, this is the one you want, this is the one you like, and you start role playing. you start coming up with ideas about your character, and I love it. I get inspired by what you're telling me, I lean in, my eyes light up, I'm sincerely enjoying what you have to say, and I weave those details into the story. Dan, if you were to play in one of my games, like, one of my games actually had Gnarl Suresh of the White Masks. And if you said, look, there's this gigantic thunder dragon, I'm not going to be intimidated by him. What I'm going to do is that I'm going to say I'll have the other dragon throw me up there, and I'm going to cleave its skull in. And I would think, that's great. And I would start imagining in my mind the scene that would play out, depending upon your dice and how they rolled. Now, it might be something where you get thrown and launched through a stone wall into the middle of the tower, and, hey, let's roll with that. Let's see where the story goes. Or you take your axe and you just grab the whiskers of this thunder dragon and start cleaving its skull in. And as it falls to the ground, you crack open its skull with this visual crack, crack. You rip out the skull plates and start feasting on the brain inside while roaring in this feral howl. And that's just me coming up with ideas and rolling with it. But I would enjoy it. That would be fun for me. I enjoy improvising. So immediately, I'm taking everyone that's ever told you no, told that idea was stupid, this character is bad... And I'm pushing them aside for five minutes, or just five seconds in that moment. In that moment, at that table, in that place in time, you're appreciated. Someone enjoys the creativity that you put out. Not only that, but I'm setting that tone. The other five players at the table are enjoying what you put out too, and the chemistry between us as we weave the story. And their understanding and connection to the world get better, moment by moment, by what everyone puts into the story, what everyone puts into their game that they share... They walk in as individuals, and they will walk out with a shared experience that they would get to connect with each other and empathize with each other a little bit more and have that character sheet in their hand for those times that they shared. That's really the things I want to accomplish in my game, not just taking a group of individuals and spoon-feeding them a the story, but making them creators and owning that, if only for a few hours at a gaming table.
0: Yeah, Let me give you three things that I have used in more classically structured role-playing games that I think create a similar sort of script-flipping buy-in from the players. The first is new items. Give the character something, game zero, right? You're starting the game. Give them something in their inventory that you don't explain. And they can choose to explain it if they want. Why do they have a wooden doll? They can choose to explain it. Or not, but it's something there from the game master to them that might get them thinking creatively. That's a
1: great idea.
0: <laughs> the second one is new people. For example, they walk into town and all of a sudden their uncle is there. They never wrote that they had an uncle, but they never wrote that they didn't either. So now they do. And now they do. <laughs> and so I have just created because you know what? As the game master, it is my right to create the NPCs. So now you've got an uncle, and this is how the uncle fits into things. And then the third thing is new meaning. In the Skies of Glass game, for example, Wayne has a book that he keeps on him where he journals what he encounters in each town, and he's intending to use it to merchant things for. We put it up on Patreon. We let people vote on what it was they wanted revealed, right, of all these mysteries I've got going. And the one that won the vote... Is in the first game, an NPC told Wayne that he had no idea what the real value of his book was. And that was what people voted for, which surprised me because mm-hmm. I thought they would have picked a different mystery. One in particular, I thought they would have picked knowing who somebody called the Rat Man really is. But they chose to want to understand why an NPC told him that. And as of the most recent game, it was revealed why Wayne's book, which is meant to be a merchanting journal he keeps, actually has a substantially different value in a different context. To, coincidentally, The Rat Man. Yes, to The Rat Man. (laughs) (laughs) But the point being, though, that I put new meaning into something he has. And now his character has not yet heard this. His character has not learned this truth. It will be interesting to see how his character develops once his character is exposed to that information, which once again, he didn't develop. But that's a sort of, it's not exactly the same, but that's a sort of negative space I'm giving him to work with, is here are these facts. Now, Wayne, what are you going to do with these facts? How does this develop and change your perception of the reality? Though, Ryan, I have to pick on you a little bit because there was something you did in a role-playing game. That.
2: Which one? Okay. Was that sober?
0: Uh, I sober? I would assume
3: so. <laughs> Not in any any game I've ever run. <laughs> uh,
0: I would assume so. Alright, so a while back you sent me something and we actually did a show topic off of this. Because you sent me a transcript of an online RPG you'd done. Text-based, right? So it was ah, yes.
2: text Goes to Luminos. Yes. I remember that one. And,
0: and I, I won't get too much into the detail of the game because it had a therapeutic element that would not be my place to violate but within that game right and what we talked about on the show was that you gave finite options as hooks they were not requirements but if you walked into a room it'd be like there's a dresser here there's this npc sitting over here doing something there's this third thing or you can invent your own action But you had Mm -hmm. these prompts, right? So if you were lost, if you were kind of vacant in the moment and couldn't think of anything to do, there were immediate levers you could pull to develop things. And you sent me a transcript of this, which was 128 pages long. Holy cow. And I can't believe Mm -hmm. I read it, but I did. I read the entire thing. (laughs) Maybe because it had tits in it. I don't know.
2: But... (laughs)
0: Like pictures or words? No, it was words, but uh. I, I'll take what I can get. But the point is, it was 100, it's 128 pages long, and normally I would not read something like this, but I'm like, eh, it's Ryan, you know, it's... Uh, I'll read it. And so I read it down until I got to one point. I was doing a live commentary back to you and the, the other person that was involved over mm-hmm. Facebook Messenger, and then there was this moment of horror... Uh, I I suddenly wanted to go from... Because the world was very non-threatening, right? It was was very Mm -hmm. therapeutic, it was very comforting. It was a very gentle, loving sort of place.
2: The game was specifically made to reconstruct that person's sense of safety. And that was the whole idea, that nothing in that entire setting at any point would cause her harm.
0: Yes, until we get to... She goes into a place where she's getting prepared for a journey to another town. And he describes a spider, like an eight foot spider coming out to using its silk to make her new clothes. And I'm like, what the is happening in this world? And so then I'm like, I want to see drop pods of space marines coming in. We need to purge the unclean. Yeah. This whole place. Exterminatus. exterminatus. <laughs> yes, Exterminatus. It's like, this is over. This was all fun and games until this fucking giant spider shows up. And now suddenly it's like, what has happened? It, it's you, you have inserted a nightmare in the middle of a game of Candyland. It, it's like suddenly you landed on instead of like lollipop land, you just landed on everything floats down here. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? Maybe it, she likes spiders. No, no, I, it wasn't it. So I'm going back and forth like this, like, what, you know,
2: of what? This Luke's is freaking out for a good 15 minutes. Yeah, it, it was great. It,
0: until finally somewhere in there, Ryan actually gets online because I was live commenting this, right? He actually gets online. I was like, no, 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 no. It's not like I'm picturing she lobe Right, he's like, no, it's not that. It's it was actually based on a character from an anime. It was a day or what, what's her name?
2: Raknaya from the anime Monster Musume. Okay, which, yes. if you ever watch the show or read the manga, it's Monster Girls with Tits. That is what yes. the exact yes. premises of that whole show.
0: So imagine a Dryder, except not creepy not evil, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like a spider centaur. Drider's like that chick at
3: the bar at closing time and the lights come on and you figure you're drunk enough, why not? She's
0: not a Merilith, <laughs> but she'll do. But, yeah, <laughs> you just want to see where it goes. yeah. And so then when he explained I mean, that, he that no, it's actually a much more... And, and I had to look the character up because I'm not big in anime, but I actually looked up pictures of the character and it's like, okay...
1: That's not as scary as
0: I thought. Yeah, I'm still not a huge (laughs) fan of Spider Centaur thing, but this is quite different. This is quite different than what I was picturing a moment ago, which is Sheila wanders out and (laughs) and starts offering to make clothing, and it's like, what hath Ryan wrought?
2: Let's pick this apart. The last five or so minutes, Dan, you are normally a calm, collected guy. You've loosened up a bit the last, your last few dozen podcasts ever since Brodor came on the show, and thank <laughs> God you loosened up a bit. You needed it, but <laughs> <laughs> <pick> this
0: Ryan's <laughs> the type of friend that, that would get yeah, you well, over her. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, <Yes. laughs>
2: seriously. So he just said yes. Look, I'm in the military. We have a rather positive view of sex workers. So oh, I didn't know you were still in the military. Sorry let's pick this apart for a moment. Consider that of all the open-ended meeting you could have found in that moment and in that scene where the characters established were like a, you had a human at the front desk. You had various anthropomorphic, either monster girls or monster people in the Sheltie setting, you know, maybe like a cat person, maybe like a dog person. There's a Chocobo person later on. And with this, in this consistency I had in the setting, you somehow imagine Shelob from The Lord of the Rings just creeping her way in there. <laughs> oh, and this shows you the, really the intensity that had to go into designing that game because imagine that for everything. These just charges waiting to explode and waiting to just build up and build up. For you, it was spiders. And as soon as you had anything close to it, anything resembling it, that's going to come forward and those feelings are going to come out like they did during the live reading and like they just did in the last 5 minutes this was a natural part about reading my audience i have to be sensitive to whenever i run a game right and of
0: course in fairness to you i'm just i'm just picking on you here but in fairness to you
2: no worries i'll pick on you right back okay
0: <laughs> you already offered me a hooker so i'm i'm placated but that game was not written for me you know i was consuming that game but that game was not written for me You know, that game was not designed with me in mind. And so when I got to that part, everything up to this point had typically been described in brief, right? Lots of that negative space you're talking about, Ryan. So Mm -hmm. it would be things like saying, you know, for example, there might be a cat girl. Okay, but it's so I don't have a lot of detail. I don't know what color her fur is or even how much she has fur versus skin or is this like an anapuna, unipuma sort of thing or is this, you know, what what sort of cat girl are we talking about? That was very much like I don't know, leave. but she's got
3: two <laughs> pumas.
0: <laughs> but when you got to that one part, you simply said spider. Mm-hmm. You did not say spider girl, you did not say you know, half spider, half woman, you just drop the noun spider. And so being someone, when I was younger in particular, I had severe arachnophobia. And that's not something that I struggle with half so much in my adulthood. But as a child, I had severe arachnophobia. And so I see this one word by itself, no context, no descriptors, and suddenly, I In am picturing—I'm picturing this 1950s, <laughs> 1960s, black and white, poorly puppeted horror movie where this car-sized spider comes, it's
1: all hairy, and- yeah,
0: yeah, it's got urticating <laughs> hairs and all this stuff comes running out. It's like, hey, I'll make you clothes, and it's like, <laughs> what?
3: Don't make me, don't make me clothes. <laughs>
2: no. <Nope. Watch that. laughs> It is fascinating how fear does that, because just recently we had the 4th of July, and I was stationed in Balad, Iraq for a, few, for a while, and that's nicknamed Mortaritaville, because we have more incoming mortar rounds and artillery shells in that one forward operating base than the rest of Iraq combined. So whenever 4th of July rolls around, it's typically not a fun time for me for the exact same experience you had for that story. Fear amounts those feelings build and then they just go and they go faster than any cognition or any rational thought has you have to catch up and re that and let it calm down and that is part of being cognizant of that and being aware of it I try and pl- put that into my games both for you know trying to abate fear or trying to slip in small bits of it so a person can work through it or in my case Three little girls say, "Let's fix the beep boops, Dad." And now that's the game, because that's where the temperature of the game is going.
0: Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but beep boops, Dad, was a warbot, correct, or some form of warbot?
2: Yep, that's part of the. It's there. If people are willing to see it, and how they want to interpret that.
0: But it was never a plot element.
2: Well. Well, and what
0: I mean by that is he was a warbot. But correct me if I'm wrong. Once again. There was no killing bender at the nope. okay right. It's not like he comes back online and all of a sudden he laser gatling's the all spiders robots. or, or yeah, the other robots.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, even though I've had people expressly tell me that hey my old GM would have done that to me or my current GM would have done that to me, I say your GM's a soggy bag of d- and you need to find a different game.
3: Oh, <laughs> right? No, you're absolutely right because the the thing about running uh running a game right. And, and I often liken running a game to managing personnel because you have so many different types of people, so many different desires. But the thing that is most important when you're game mastering a game, for me, is if your players are telling you something, right? If there's something that they're vocalizing, it may not be important to you or anybody mm-hmm. else at the table, but it's important to them. Mm-hmm. And so what's important to them You have to recognize that and make it important in the game.
1: Well, and sometimes Uh it doesn't even have to be character related. Um, My example is in our current Pathfinder game, I'm sick of making decisions. The rest of the team just like looks at me. And so I went to the GM and I'm like, I'm done. I'm like, I will sit here and I will do anything, but I am not choosing to anything in the game like that is what is important to the game right now for me
3: oh, is that because they crap on you
1: no 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 no. it's just that like you know he'll throw like hooks in he'll be like yeah this dwarf with like a bunch of insignias comes in and that's like totally supposed to be targeted at my brother who's also a dwarf and is a monk and my brother's just like yep
0: i had an online battle <laughs> tech game i was running that went about that way whereas a group of i don't know four or five players but it was pretty much a lone wolf between me and Johnny G. And my brother was in that, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, and there was one game. There was one game. <laughs> that he was excited about. Where that, yeah, where, where they had a running street battle. And that was the one where they ended up winning the game, not through mechs, but through an act of organized crime. They blew up somebody's car. But he came alive in that one. But so much of that game was pretty much me talking to John while he had to make the decisions. because. Yep. No matter how closely I threw the plot in somebody's face, I just wouldn't Wouldn't do anything with it. And and that's why as a game master,
3: when, I mean, you tell me it's not, you know, a perfectly well thought out or well written game system. But the idea behind it is, is that you tell me what is important to you for your game experience, right? You right, know? and
1: if that's something character-related, or like me, where I don't want to make any decisions, I'm literally going to follow the party around and swing my sword. That right. is what I want out of this game, because I'm tired of being a leader. Right, It's the same thing as having a specific...
2: Julia, you bring up an excellent point, is that maybe during the first session or two, making these decisions and being a leader was fine, but those things change. Mm-hmm. I have to appreciate and build that trust of players, not just how they are then, but maybe an hour to the game, that's going to change as... Social dynamics, relationships, and that identity of the character and how it might change and who they are might develop through gameplay. I need to respect that that player's on this new emotional page. What I wanted doesn't matter. My sense of control doesn't matter. I need to look at where this person is, really put myself in their shoes, and understand where they're coming from, and do my best to weave that into the experience. Because more than the game, I care about that person having a good time. That. That's the alpha and omega priority. If I don't have that, I don't have anything else to make this function.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and if they're not having a good time, they're not going to contribute. Right. And if one person's not contributing, draw, it drags down the mood of the game for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you give that to everybody at the table, let me know what's important to you as a participant in this game so
2: that we can all have a good time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Right. And it makes less work for me.
2: i agree with that if i were to set up my entire game and how to run it in four lines it would be open yourself to being vulnerable be sincere in your appreciation of the player's input control is your enemy make and feel a cohesive setting
0: you know i think that first one of be vulnerable there's almost an i don't know if there's a show in that or that's just kind of a theme an unspoken theme to fear the boot of if you don't take any risks, if you don't allow that investment, if you don't allow yourself to have the opportunity to, to fail, then you never have the big successes.
3: It's, it's funny, what I latched onto is control is the enemy. Mm-hmm. And I really do feel that in my games. I mean, just looking at running the most recent You Tell Me game at, at Fear the Con 10 where I had almost no control over the game versus what I do at my current DD game. Yeah. game, where your players sit down at the table and they are expecting a certain level of control from you as the game master sure. to lead them through the story as opposed to them driving the story. Uh,
0: if you want somebody who in an ongoing campaign will pretty quickly break you of any sense of control you have (laughs) game with chat chat (laughs) because the amount of things the amount of truth he invents on the spot and unless he's completely off the and he always does leave open that possibility. it's like you know if i say something that's too far gone you can you know back me down and i'll I'll work with that but the amount of stuff he invents on the spot that i just accept and integrate and go with
1: you just bend over and take it
0: (laughs) yeah i just bend over and take it like Never mind.
3: I was gonna say that's why that there's that big industrial vat of you know, when Chad rolls up his sleeve he comes out elbow deep with just a slap wet against Dan's <laughs> delved into negative episode territory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a let's, little let's bit. Dial that back. And <laughs> this in this episode, I apologize for using the f word because we were talking about kids gaming, yeah. and now I've devolved into this. In the, yeah. <laughs> So,
2: all right. went out there recently I had a Facebook conversation with Aisha, stating that look, you do magic, you do pure sorcery in editing these episodes, and she had the audacity to deny me. I will point this one Crisco gooped example over why she does magic.
0: <laughs> I think Brodor does magic. She just breaks the spells. Yes. That's, that, that's my view on it.
2: <laughs> Rotor can do magic, or rather, Chad in this case does magic. He comes up with character ideas, holds his fist up, and says, Hey, Dan, abracadabra, I'm going to make this fist disappear.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. I'm sorry uh, if you tuned in, whatever's applicable. <laughs> uh, Ryan, thank you for joining us. We're going to ha- be having Ryan back on again here at that whole. Therapy is in gaming is something I really want to cover and keep failing to assemble my round table on. So we, we are going to get back on that. But beyond that, have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time.
3: If Chad was here, someone would say, See ya.
0: This has been a production of Fear the booth copyright 2017. Listeners are free to use this episode in any non commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at FearTheBoot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy network of shows. You can find other great shows in this network at TheRPGAcademy.com slash network.